You may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We will finish chapter 3. It'll give us then a couple weeks to do something a little more Christmas themed. I'm not exactly sure what that will be at this point. And then New Year's Day, it will be something New Year's themed. And then probably, unless I'm stuck in the middle of something, then uh, the second week in the new year, we'll go back to Ephesians and start chapter 4. So in Ephesians chapter 3, this is Paul's second prayer on behalf of the churches, especially we're talking the Gentile churches, and then it is immediately followed by a doxology, which is a praise to God. Uh, We sing the doxology, which there's many different doxologies, different ways where God is praised in a very short, concise form. It usually uh, speaks of all three persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, praising God. I take it personally in this second prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 that there are three prayer requests, though some people have as many as six. I just think grammatically, if you look at what Paul wrote and you break it down, I think there's really three requests and everything else enhances those essential three. So it would look like this, the three requests number one, that God may grant you to be strengthened with power. Now, if you were to say, I've got, the request is that we would be strengthened with power by His Spirit. But if you were to say, well, isn't the request really that God would grant that or give that? You wouldn't be wrong. Uh, I'm just focusing on what God would, would give, what God will give to His church. That's request number one. The second request is that you may be able to comprehend and to know Christ's love. So the first request has to do with power, that the church would be empowered by His Spirit. And then secondly, we will be able to comprehend and know Christ's love. And then the third request, which is really the the goal of the entire prayer, is that so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So that really, Paul's prayer, if you want to shorten it even, it's a short prayer, but if you wanted to shorten it even further, Paul's prayer is that the church would be filled with all the fullness of God. And if you were to ask the good question, well, how do you get filled with the fullness of God? Well, you have to be able to comprehend and know Christ's love. And to comprehend and know Christ's love, you have to be strengthened with His power. But the real goal, where he's really headed, is that the church would be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm going to read uh, these verses, this prayer, from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. So it'll read a little different from uh, the English Standard, which is what's in the pew. It will read a little different from my base text that I teach out of. I'm reading through a Holman Christian Standard Bible now. I'm kind of, I really like it in a lot of ways. There's no, every... Every version has its own strengths and weaknesses, but uh, usually pretty early on when I, I'm breaking in a new Bible, I'm like, oh, why would they do that? Oh, why would they? And it frustrates me, but the Holman Christian Standard, there's less of those ugh moments, so I'm kind of liking it. It reads like this. The first request, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I've got the 
the coin up there with the heads and the tails, because the being strengthened with power in your inner being is one side of the coin, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith is the other side of the coin. They go together. It's one prayer request. It's one intention that Paul is praying, so that the inner being is the equivalent to the heart in the second half of the request. Your inner being is where your thoughts come from, where your motivation comes from. It's where your affections and emotions come from. It all proceeds from the heart, or it all proceeds from your inner being. And so those are two halves of the same coin. He is praying that we would be strengthened with power by the Spirit. And as that's happening, necessarily so, at the same time, Christ is dwelling in your hearts. And it's through faith. The second request. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. That's Paul's second request, that we would know God's love, be established in God's love, that we would comprehend Christ's love. I think one of the things we talked about last week that I tried to emphasize that we should be captivated or arrested by certain aspects of what Christ has done. The story shouldn't be so familiar. It's like, yes, it's the Christmas story. And yes, I know about the shepherds and I know about the wise men that came. And it's all so familiar. And it, and, and it no longer stirs your heart or your inner being. I think we would do well to consider what it meant that Christ would leave the glory that he shared with his Father in heaven to be born holy man, totally man, without resigning the fact that he was totally God. The third request then is where it's all headed, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. After saying that, he breaks into his doxology. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. That's how he ends this, this first section, this first half of his letter to the Gentile churches, which is very much doctrinal, as I've said in the past. It's all about what God has done for the church. And it's not until chapter 4 that he says, and now here's what you need to do in light of what God has done, which is where we will pick up uh, as we go into the next year. But let's backtrack because we've already covered the first two prayer requests. We haven't dealt with the third prayer request, being filled with the fullness of God. So we're going to go back, look at that, and then we'll spend a little bit of time on the doxology I'll open it up for comments and questions, and that should uh, take all of our time. The English Standard Version now reads like this in the second half of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the request. That's what Paul is praying, that the church would be filled with the fullness of God with the question mark, what does that mean? What does it look like to be filled with the fullness of God? Now, if you have a snake phobia, you might just want to like, close your eyes for just a moment because what it is not saying is that we become God. 
to be filled with the fullness of God. He's not praying that now we become one with God. That's not the request because that was the temptation that goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Where the serpent said, God knows that when you eat it, eat this forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Paul's not now saying, oh, in fact, we can be like God. We can be filled with the fullness of God. We become God. No, that's, that's a temptation. That would be a lie. That would be heresy. That's not what Paul is praying. But he does mean something by what he says. So let's try to unpack it. First of all, that word with is a very poor translation, but it's everybody's Bible. Every translation I checked used the preposition with. It's actually a preposition, I think, the Bible language experts, they would go with the word unto, which doesn't make quite so much sense, which is why I think all the translations go with the word with. It reads nicely, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, but literally it would be better that you may be filled unto all the fullness of God. Uh, I'll show you, the, the preposition is used like nearly 1,800 times in the New Testament. So this isn't an obscure word. It's a very common preposition, just like we have very common prepositions. Out of some almost 1,800 uses in the New Testament, I will show you how it's translated in a graph form. It looks something like this. It's most often translated with the preposition to... Secondly would be into, third would be in, four would be the fourth way, then you've got at, on, forever, as, so, against, and then somewhere down in these little tiny slivers where it's only just a handful of times you could probably count it on one hand would be the preposition with. That's just not how it's usually translated. So I kind of want to take that off the table just so, because I think with kind of gives almost reads like we become God, we become filled with God. All that God is, we are, and that's not what he's saying, as I've already said. Paul is praying for the church to be entirely filled unto all God's fullness, that is, his presence, as much as is possible for mere mortals such as we are. Now, there are some very uh, biblical ways to illustrate what it means for something to be filled with the fullness of God, which I think fits very nicely with what exactly Paul is praying for here on behalf of the church. And by the church, I really mean all of God's people, the, the worldwide church, the universal church. No one local expression can be filled with all the fullness of God that is meant to be we benefit from all of Christ's church in every place. And together, the fullness of God is more fully realized than any one local expression, or even smaller than that, any one Christian. Let me take you back to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. If you uh, start a new Bible reading schedule, which they're on the back foyer counter, and you happen to be in the early books, in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, after the Israelites are set free from slavery in Egypt, there's a lot of time spent on building the tabernacle. Actually, before they build it, there's a lot of time spent on, here's how you build it. Here's what needs to be built with very specific 
uh, dimensions and requirements. And then after giving all the specificity about how to do it, then they do it. And then finally, when you get to the very end of the book of Exodus, they dedicate what was done to the Lord and the glory of the Lord comes down and it fills that tabernacle. In particular, it fills the most holy place inside the tabernacle. Now, in one very real sense, not all of who God is fit in the most holy place inside their tabernacle, let alone not all of who God is could be confined to uh, above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. That's not what happened. But all that was in there was entirely filled with God's presence in that most holy place. Everything in there was most holy, which is why the high priest was only allowed to go in there one time a year for a very specific purpose and only after he had followed certain protocol to be able to enter into that most holy place where it was entirely filled, anything that was there, with the holiness and the glory of God. After the tabernacle, you've got the temple. There had been hundreds of years. Then David, King David, wanted to build a temple and he wasn't allowed by the Lord because he was a man of blood. But the Lord said, your son Solomon will build a temple. David acquired a lot of provisions. Solomon built the temple. It took years to build. And then when Solomon's dedicating the temple, as Moses dedicated the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord comes down and fills the most holy place in that temple. Fills it. Again, it's the idea it's entirely filled with God's presence so much as it could possibly be filled in the small amount of space that there is. It couldn't contain the temple or, or the Lord entirely, but all that was there was filled with the Lord's glory, filled with the Lord's presence. So that Solomon prayed, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Solomon knows you, you can't fit God in a box. You can't fit him in the temple. But it is teaching something about the presence of God being wholly associated with a certain place at a certain time. Jeremiah the prophet records the Lord's words many hundreds of years later, where the Lord says this, Am I a God near at hand and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. All of the heavens, all of creation. We, don't, we have no idea how far creation goes out, how far the universe is still expanding, but even if we did know the boundaries, which would be however many light years away, the Lord says, that can't contain me. I'm the creator. Anything that is created necessarily must be less than the creator. So if all of the heavens can't contain the glory of the Lord, how much less could a, tab or a temple that Solomon builds contain the Lord? Well, by way of extension... What we're talking about is an, the idea of totality, completeness, abundance, entire sway and control. It means to fill and, to, and to, to fulfill. That temple, that tabernacle, entirely filled with the presence of God, so much as it can. 
Paul is praying for the church, the temple of the Lord, that we would be entirely filled like the tabernacle was and like the temple was. We don't become God, but so much as is within us, we are entirely filled with the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the holiness of God himself is what Paul is praying, building on those two past experiences. Paul uses this idea of filling uh, several times in his letter to the Ephesians. I want to briefly survey them. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, it reads like this. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of Christ, He who descended, He who came down, we're celebrating His coming down, His advent. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So there's two fillings there. One is that Christ will fill all things. That is, that has that idea of entire control, entire sway over. His presence is, covers everything in heaven and earth. We just sang that song, Joy to the World. What will be redeemed? Well, how far is the curse found? Where's the curse found? Because wherever the curse of sin has made its mark, it will be conquered and reclaimed by Christ who will fill all things in heaven on earth. All things in creation will be set right by Him. They don't become Him. They don't become God. It's not Hinduism where everything is God. But they are under the sway of he who is God, who is Lord of history and Lord over sin, death, and hell. Lord of life. He controls and wins all things. In the meantime, the church has the business of attaining and demonstrating this fullness, this completeness of what does it look like to be under the sway of him who is Lord of sin, death, and hell. What does that look like? The church should be a demonstration of that. Imperfectly, imperfectly, but we, we live to sing his praises. We live to walk in obedience to him. We live so that we are not tossed to and fro and carried by every wind of doctrine. We fall under his lordship. Second example, I'm going to skip the second one. Let me go immediately to the third one where Paul talks about, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So what he's prayed in chapter 3, now he admonishes the church to be filled with the Spirit. We're under his sway. We demonstrate his glory. We demonstrate his holiness. Be filled with the Spirit. As opposed to being drunk with wine, if you're drunk with wine or drunk with whatever, you are under the sway of some, some influence. It controls your speech. It controls the way you walk or stagger. It controls your decision-making process. If you're under the sway of alcohol, if you're drunk with wine, it affects everything about you. And Paul says, don't be that, but take that image and be filled with the Spirit. It affects your speech, 
Your tongue is now redeemed. It affects your motivations. It affects your interests. It affects the, the lifestyle that you live because you're under the sway of the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back. So this idea of totality, completeness, entire sway and control. Archibald G. Brown was somebody who lived, uh, he was born, I think, I think that's 10 years after, maybe 12 years after Charles Spurgeon was born. He was actually a student of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon opened up a ministry school. Uh, there's a book written called Lectures to My Students. So if you wanted to know how did Spurgeon teach students to go into ministry, we know it because he wrote it out. So he was a student of Charles Spurgeon. He actually, I don't know if he ministered alongside Spurgeon at some point or after Spurgeon was gone. He, he was minister at uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. So he was a Baptist minister after the likes of Spurgeon. He explains all of this, this idea of being filled with the fullness of God this way. There is a vast difference between the incommunicable fullness of Christ and the fullness which he has on purpose to bestow it upon his people. What he's saying is this. There are aspects of God's character that are incommunicable. God doesn't expect you to try to be those things. He's omnipotent. He doesn't expect you to mimic that. He's, he's uh, omniscient. He knows all things. He doesn't expect you to mimic that either. He's entirely and wholly uh, eternal and holy. We're not those things. He doesn't expect us to be those things. They are incommunicable. They're His and His alone. But there's another sense in which the fullness of Christ is something that is bestowed upon us. There are aspects of God's character that we are meant to reflect. I mean, in the men's... Uh, book discussion or the breakfast that we do, we did two books by Jen Wilkin. One book was all about the attributes of God which cannot be communicated to us and we should stop trying to be like God. We're not. The second book was these are attributes of God that he fully much expects you to be like. This is what you're called to be like because you belong to him. You've been bought with a price. So there is a fullness of God and that's the way they spelled it back then. There is a fullness of God which it were blasphemy for us to think of as our, as our own or to ask for, whilst, on the other hand, there is a fullness in Christ that it is sinful on our part not to expect to receive. Paul wants us to be filled with the fullness of God. We don't become God, but we are still to be filled with the fullness of God. And both are true at the same time. First Peter puts it this way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's not calling us to be God, to share the Godhead. He is calling us to be holy because He is holy. The church ought to reflect the holiness of God. If it's not reflected anywhere else on earth, the church ought to reflect. We are a people that don't walk in step 
with worldly values, with worldly interests. We redeem that which is in the world and bring it before Christ, our Lord and Savior, so that we do everything that we do to the glory of God. He talks about it being the fullness of God, and I underline the of God part because I think it's important to recognize that God is the standard of fullness, not uh, I need to be different from people in the world that I consider myself like, I don't know. Well, back when I worked at Red Lobster, back in the day, when I first came here, I was bivocational. So I, had, uh, I worked at Red Lobster. I had my insurance through them, which was a great benefit. When I was at Red Lobster, um, there was a t- I mean, I was, I was a Christian, and everybody knew I was a Christian, and I felt pretty good about the fact that I was a Christian. And, and I looked at the people that I worked with, and I didn't party with them. I didn't smoke pot with them. I didn't go out drinking with them. I didn't use the kind of language they used. And I felt like I, felt like I was a pretty holy person. Uh, and I don't mean to sound as arrogant as I, or, or self-righteous now. I don't think I was. But, but I, I realized there was a difference between myself and them. And then in a Bible study I was doing, I think I did, we, I guess it was about, I don't think it was personal devotions. In a Bible study, we did First Peter. And in First Peter, it struck me, because First Peter will do that to you. First Peter struck me, God isn't calling me to a standard of holiness so that I live different from the world and I'm always comparing myself to the world. Well, at least I'm not like that. I don't do that. I don't practice that. I don't talk that way. I don't do those things. And God said, well, the standard for holiness is not don't be that, it's to be this. I want you to be holy like I'm holy. And when that thought struck me, I realized how little progress I had made. Because I was always busy comparing myself with what I wasn't instead of what I was meant to be. So that becomes very clear in this Peter passage. You're to be holy as I'm holy. See, you can be very content as a Christian if all you do is compare yourself to the world and think, well, shoot, there's lots of people. They don't gather anywhere on a Sunday. They're out doing whatever, whether it's boating or golfing or whatever they want, whatever their interest is, they're doing that on Sunday, and at least I've gathered in church. But that's not the standard to not just be like the world. The standard is to be holy as he is holy. And it puts a whole new spin on it and how much work needs to be done and why Paul is praying. (laughs) Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. I'm filled with the fullness of God, or I'm on that track when I realize that God is working all things together for my good, having been called according to his purpose. As I'm understanding that and embracing whatever path of obedience God has given me to walk, as I understand that, I am being filled with the fullness of God. This is another guy from the same era as Spurgeon, though this this guy was a congregational minister. His name was whatever the J stands for, J. Jackson Ray from the 19th century. J. Jackson Ray wrote this, the central thought in the Ephesian text, 
is the ability and willingness of God in Christ Jesus to do according to every possible measure of human need at every possible time. If we realized this, that God in Christ Jesus is able to do according to every possible measure of human need at every possible time, if we realize this, what a changed aspect it would give to this poor life of ours. How small and worthless would be the things that charm us most. How bravely and calmly we should bear the trials of our life. How well we should get rid of all this fear and doubt and gloom about tomorrow which darkens our today. In other words, if I really believe Romans 8.28 is true, it kind of goes back to one of the points of emphasis I was making last week. Like, we're indestructible. Like, there's no harm that can come to a believer's life because God is working all things out together for good for those that are called according to His purpose. He loves us entirely, and everything is being woven into this perfect tapestry of grace. It doesn't mean I understand it or appreciate it, but by faith I believe it because that's what he said is true. This ushers into the doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I think there's a commercial, I don't watch much TV, but I think it shows up even on on stuff I'm doing on the internet sometimes where it's like, live life without limits. You know, if you sign up for this cell phone service, you know, have no limits. You want all the data you could possibly want. You know, just keep streaming. No limits. Well, this text, this doxology, is we worship a God who has no limits. He has no boundaries. And Paul can't find enough words to try to stress how God is without limits has no boundaries. Nobody can mark off what, what God can do and what God can't do. God never trespasses. It's all His. So it starts off, he says, now to Him who is able, we serve a God who is able. There are um, lots of instances in Scripture where, I think if I ask the question, what is God able to do? There's lots of ways you could answer that question. John the Baptist said, well, I'll tell you, our God is able to turn uh, children into Abraham from these stones. Our God is able to do that. Jesus talked about uh, when his disciples reacted to what Jesus said about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, and it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. His disciples were like, well, then who can be saved? Camels don't go through eyes of needles. It's impossible. It's, we're not talking about it. I don't think it's talking about a camel going through the wall in a very small entrance. It's talking about an impossible situation, which is their reaction. Then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Our God is able to save even a rich man. Even somebody who is stuck in his own, whatever his sin is, whether it's Romans 1 sin or Romans 2 sin, our God is able to save. There's other examples. There's uh, where Jesus, where Jesus. Well, actually, the the uh, critics of Jesus say when Jesus pronounces uh, forgiveness upon the man that was paralyzed and let down through the roof, and he says, "Your sins are forgiven." And and his, uh, the critics of Jesus said, "Who can forgive sins but God, al God alone?" And that's that's true. Who can do that? 
But Christ is able to do that. Jesus is able to do that. Jesus is able to forgive my sin. He's able to forgive your sin. Because he's a God without boundaries, without limitations. You've got uh, another example in Jude. He is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Hebrews says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He's able to, he's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to complete what he started. Revelation, he's able to uh, break the seals of the scroll. When a search had been done on heaven and earth, who could open the seals, which I think represent God's purposes of redemption, salvation, and judgment to bring righteousness and justice on the earth? Who's able to open the scroll? And they did a search everywhere from Adam to whoever the last person is, and nobody was able. No prophet, no priest, no king, no angel, no higher power. And then all of a sudden it's, look, there's a lamb looking as if it was slain. A lion from the tribe of Judah. This one is able to open the scroll. Because our God is able. Secondly, he says on top of that, him who is able to do. He's a God who can do things. He's able to do that. The word do is a very common verb, and I, I want to be careful that you don't get the wrong idea, but our English word poem is derived from that word to do. It doesn't mean that every time the word is found in the Bible that it's talking about something with poetic structure necessarily. I just want you to know that our word poem is derived from that word, and so there is a, a beauty to the fact in Romans 2, or uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, when it says we are his workmanship, we are the poetry of God. If you are a Christian, you are part of the poetry of God. Where he is writing this, this wonderful poem, which includes all tribes, nations, and tongues, and it will bring glory to himself. Our God is able to write that poetry. Because he has no boundaries. He has no limitations. Secondly, he's able to do far more. The word far more in the Greek is hooper. We get our word hyper from that, which means hyper. If something's hyper, it's like, a, it's, it's excessive. It's excessive. It's beyond what you would expect. You know, you, uh, sometimes children are hyper. Uh, you need to calm down. God his ability is, is always in hyperdrive. He's always able to exceed any boundary that you may place on him. As if he couldn't do it, Paul uses the word hyper there. Then he says, uses this word abundantly, which is a word that Jesus used on multiple occasions, but the one I will suggest to you is when Jesus talked about being the good shepherd. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Those that Jesus calls as his sheep, he doesn't call them to cower as dogs, but to be his sheep, and they will, they will live an abundant life, an abundant life. Not the life maybe I would choose for myself, but because he's the Romans 8.28 God, working all things together for good, at the end of the day, it is a life of abundance. And then he says... 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. And then you can tack on top of that or think. All that we ask or think. God knows what I ask or what I'm even hesitant to ask, but maybe I entertain the thought, but it seems so outlandish I wouldn't even give voice to it. God is able to do far more abundantly all that I ask or think. But because God is God, because his wisdom is greater than my own, God is wise enough not to grant me all that I ask. Because it would, it would not be an improvement on what he's already planned to do that will demonstrate his power and his glory and his goodness and his grace. But he's able to. And he will. There's lots of examples of this in Scripture. Abraham would be one. Uh, Abraham is somebody who was called out from his uh, a land of idolatry. The Lord made certain promises to Abraham. Uh, you will have a child, and in you, all the nations of the earth will... You will be a blessed, and in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In that child, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, Abraham uh, found it... Uh, that the fulfillment of God's promise was a little slow in coming. And so his years are going on and on, and Abraham becomes a very wealthy man, but he has no direct heir. There comes a point where he's, he wants uh, his chief servant to be his heir. That's what he's... I mean, he, I think he's thinking... Well, I know he's thinking that. It tells me that. I don't know that he voices that to God. There comes another time where uh, he and Hagar... Uh, concoct a plan where he will have a child by Sarah's handmaiden Hagar and a child Ishmael is born. And the years accumulate. Ishmael's getting older. There's still no other child. And so there comes a point where Abraham's like, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. That's what he's asking. Let I-, I mean, he is my child. Let Ishmael be the chosen one. And the Lord's like, no. I'm gonna- what I've got planned is greater than what you're asking. It's not going to make sense to you but it will come to fruition. You will, Sarah, your wife, will bear a child in her old age, in your old age too. And that will be the promised child. But it's better than that. Because Isaac isn't the savior of the world. Isaac is merely a type or a foreshadowing of one child who will be born who is the savior of the world, who will be a blessing to all the nations. So Isaac's a type, but, which was unimaginable to Abraham, but even beyond that. Christ would be born. Greater than anything Abraham could have possibly conceived or hoped for or even thought, but it was true. I could go through other stories, but I'll run out of time. Moses would be one that experienced far beyond what he ever dreamed, being a deliverer of Israel. There was a time where Moses said, Oh, Lord, uh, or the Lord said to Abraham, uh, The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and start over with you. And and Moses interceded for the people. It would never happen because the Lord had already made a promise to Abraham. It's, It's going to work out, but it's all blowing people's minds how God works this plan out. How God would feed them in the wilderness with manna for decades. How God would usher them into a promised land where they're like grasshoppers and the people are like giants, but they would take the land by the Lord's power. How the Red Sea would part before that. On and on the story goes, it exceeded anything Moses could have dreamed about. The Lord would fulfill his promises to his people. David, the same way. 
David's the youngest in a family of a lot of boys. He's taking care of the sheep. It's the job nobody wants. He's called. He's anointed with oil by Samuel. And the Lord makes a, enters into a covenant with David that your seed will bear a king who will rule forever and ever. And it's not Solomon, because Solomon dies. But Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He's of the seed of David. He's a, descendant, a direct descendant of David. And Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. Beyond anything David could have possibly dreamt or asked for or thought. But they're fulfillments of what Paul is praying or expressing in a doxology at the end of these first three chapters. He says it's according to the power at work within us. Not in spite of us, does God fulfill his plan? But he's fulfilling his plan within the power that is among us, in us. He's doing it through the church, not in spite of the church, not in spite of the failings, the going down detours, getting things wrong, bickering about things that don't matter, uh, being insistent about the wrong thing, majoring on the minors, uh, minoring on the majors. In spite of all that, no, it's it's according to the power at work in the church he's going to accomplish all this. The church is God's mean to bring to fulfillment all that he's purposed to do in bringing salvation to the nations. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is an unusual doxology. There's always praise to Christ. It's unusual in that there's praise or uh, directed to the church. The church demonstrates the glory of God. Some commentators would say the church is defined by those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not, it's not just anybody that claims to be a Christian that you have a Protestant church or a Catholic church or an Eastern Orthodox church, but it's those who are actually in Christ Jesus by faith the church demonstrates all that God purposes to do in salvation. The church, if nowhere else on earth, they know where they will see a demonstration of what is the kingdom of God like. It ought to be in the church. It ought to be in the church. That's what Paul is praying. That's what he's giving glory to God for. He's a believer in, in the community of God's people placed together. What are your comments and questions? Josh? It will be a lifelong process, right? It will be a lifelong process. One commentator says, you know, for something to be filled, it means other things have to be emptied. You can't fill something that's already got something in it. So part of the, part of the sanctification process, part of the way that God grows believers and together as a church, is we have to empty out our selfish interests, our pride, you know, our whatever the garbage is, that has to be emptied out so that we are filled with the fullness of God. And it's a, it's a, that's why Martin Luther said, you know, his first of 95 theses, that we are called to a life of repentance. It's not, oh, I repented back, you know, for me, I repented back when I was 9 or 10 years old and I got saved. That's true. But God calls me to repentance every day, every day. Because I'm, I'm still a work in progress. Good point. Somebody else? Rick. Yeah. If we understood 
really the first three chapters, all that God has done, it would give us such a confidence and a courage to walk in newness of life because God's already, he's already laid all the groundwork. He's already set the course. And now we just have to get on board with it through a lifestyle of repentance, emptying out the baggage so that we're filled with the fullness. Somebody else? Let's, uh, let's do our own doxology. Let's stand and sing the doxology.